welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Serenity Prayer God, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mind becoming. Okay, um... Would you please read the problem, page two or three? I'm Lee, psychologic. Hey, Lee. The problem. Many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. We teamed out with fantasy and masturbation. We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasies. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. We became true addicts, sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency relationships, and more fantasy. We got it through the eyes. We bought it. We sold it. We, tra- we traded it. We gave it away. We were addicted to the intrigue, the teeth, the forbidden. The only way we need to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and make me whole, we cried with outstretched arms. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain, and we were driven ever inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Our habit made true intimacy impossible. We could never know the real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry the connection that had the magic, because we bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real, lust killed love. First addicts, then love cripples, we took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves. Conning ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our lives. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Lee. Brian, would you please read the solution? Sure. Hey Brian. Brian. Solution: We saw our problems threefold: physical, emotional, and spiritual. Healing had to come about in all three. The crucial change in attitude began when we admitted we were powerless. The habit had us whipped. We came to meetings and withdrew from my habit. For some, this meant no sex with themselves or others, including not getting into relationships. For others, it also meant drying out and not having sex with the spouse for a time to recover from lust. We discovered that we could stop, that not feeding the hunger didn't kill us, that sex was indeed optional. There was hope for freedom, and we began to feel alive. Courage to continue, we turned more and more away from our isolating obsession with sex itself and turned to God and others. All of this was scary. We couldn't see the path ahead, except that others had gone that way before. Each new step of surrender felt it would be off the edge into oblivion, but we took it. And instead of killing us, surrender was killing the obsession. We had stepped into the light, into a whole new way of life. The fellowship gave us monitoring and support to keep us from being overwhelmed, a safe haven where we could finally face ourselves. Instead of covering our feelings with compulsive sex, we began exposing the roots of our spiritual emptiness and hunger, and the healing began. 
as we faced our defects, we became willing to change. Surrendering them broke the power they had over us. We began to be more comfortable with ourselves and others for the first time without our drug. Forgiving all who had injured us and without injuring others, we tried to right our own wrongs. Each man's more the dreadful load of guilt dropped from our shoulders until we could lift our heads, look the world in the eyes, stand free. We began practicing a positive sobriety, taking the actions of love to improve our relations with others. We were learning how to give, and the measure we gave was the measure we got back. We were finding what none of the substitutes had ever supplied. We were making the real connection. We were. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. I'm Steve. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Steve. This is another edition of Sobriety 101. We have been going through the white book. We started with a bit called Getting Started on page 63 and we've been going for several months now we're going through the book there's a couple of things that we keep emphasizing one is as it says on page 77 there's a definite relationship between SA and AA historically uh, 77 of the white book here, page 77 for those joining us for the first time and on the tape. Um, so, um, historically, SA was founded by a man named Roy who was in California in, in April of 1974, I believe. He, um, April 22nd, 1974. He, um, that's on page 20. He, 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 um, uh, found an issue of Time Magazine and had a cover story on the new alcoholism. He had been uh, struggling for some time with his addiction to lust and when he read this article he realized that this is exactly what he needed, that he had an alcoholism of lust. And so he found AA in the Los Angeles area and began uh, attending AA meetings and working the AA program on his lust addiction. There was no SA meetings at this time. He, he had an AA sponsor and he worked the steps out of the AA literature. And it says very clearly on page 77 uh, that the books Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, the 12 and 12, constitute the basic texts of the original 12-step program. This section on the steps, in the white book, this is a section on the steps. This section is not intended to be a comprehensive exposition of the steps. Notice they do go through all 12 steps here in this book. But they are, he is saying that this is not a comprehensive exposition. Uh, the AA big book and the 12 and 12 are the... Uh, are the primary um, uh, things um, uh, that, that are the basis of our program. Now, AA, the, the AA literature is about alcoholism, and we are not talking about recovering from alcoholism. However, Roy, our founder, adapted 
and adapted the AA program for his lust addiction, and that's what we use the AA literature for. And there are numerous places in the White Book where it says the same thing in different words. There's one on page 109. There's one on I won't go to them all, but I'll list list them the, the ones that I've found so far. 109, 112, 126, and 161 emphasize the relation of our program of recovery to the AA program. So, uh, I had a sponsor who was an AA member who taught me how to go through the AA literature with very close attention to the instructions in that literature. Anytime that it said that, that, that they did something and got a certain result, we, we try doing something if we want the results uh, that they got. And we try it. And, and we follow it thoroughly. In order to thoroughly follow their path, we find all these instructions and follow them. And so this is a very, uh, a very good way of reading the big book, not just reading it, but you know, working through the instructions with the uh, benefit of a sponsor who's also done that. The, the, other, the other thing uh, that uh, is a good thing to do is to read the white book. Because there are loads of instructions. And by instructions, I mean anything that is suggested here. You know, it's only a suggestion, sort of like if you jump out of an airplane, it's suggested that you wear a parachute. You know, these are the suggestions that our program of recovery have. And so if you want sobriety, which is what our fellowship is about, then following these suggestions is a really good idea. So we have been going through and looking at, uh, list, look at uh, looking very carefully at the way they break down uh, uh, the, the actions and the observations about lust. So that's been our emphasis so far. I believe we are... Wow, just in uh, like four or five months, we've gotten 20 pages. So it's a sign that somebody's doing quite a lot of talking. I don't know who that might be. But anyway, um, uh, perhaps we'll do some reading. I think we're on page 83 with step one. Who would like to read? I'll read. Step one, we admitted that we were powerless over lust, that our lives had become unmanageable. I give up. It may have come with a loud cry or in a moment of quiet resignation, but the time came when we knew the jig was up. We had been arrested, stopped in our tracks, but we had done it to ourselves. If surrender came only from without, it never took. When we surrendered out of our own enlightened self-interest, it became the magic key that opened the prison door and set us free. Arrest and surrender in order to be set free. What a paradox. But it was our self-proclaimed freedom that had been killing us, and we began to see that without limits, we would destroy ourselves. But we were powerless to limit ourselves, and the more we indulged, the more unmanageable our lives became. Each lustful act or fantasy became another full power another powerful ray penetrating the nucleus of our psyches and loosening the forces that held us together. Thus in time we came to the growing realization that we were losing control. It was to this truth that we surrendered, the truth about ourselves. 
something's wrong with me and I can't fix it. Awareness of the unmanageability of our lives was not apparent to us at first. But as we recovered from shock and spiritual blindness, we began to see how we were unable to function without lust, negative attitudes, and dependencies holding our lives together. Reaching the point of utter despair did not always come right away. It came to some of us only after we'd been in the fellowship for a while. The full effect of step one seems to come gradually or in stages with the unfolding realization of our unsoundness. It is out of this inner honesty with ourselves that the feelings of hope and forgiveness flow. We were free to see and admit what we really were what we really were inside because we were finally free from having to act out what we were. How long and how cleverly we had defended our right to wrong ourselves and others, and how long we denied there was any wrong at all. But every wrong attitude and act stored up and it's stored up its own punishment against us from within, until finally the cumulative weight of our wrongs brought us to our knees. Okay. Let's look at this again. This is quite some powerful stuff. Um, I give up. Um, there's a lot of uh, jail language in this first paragraph. The jig was up. He had been arrested. Uh, Magic key that opened the prison door, arrest and surrender in order to be free. What a paradox. Um, it's interesting here. There's a number of places. If you go to Roy's story, I can find six places. Uh, there may be more. That's how many I have found so far. In which he says something to the effect that, you know, he found some new way of acting out. And he said, free at last. Or finally I'm free. He was saying this the whole time he was going into the bondage of his addiction. And um, so he felt like it was free while, while he was going into prison, the prison of lust. And so it feels like we're going into prison when we're set free from lust. Because the real paradox is that our, our perceptions uh, are, are all distorted and we... we we see everything backwards because of the way we've been living. Um, and, and uh, it's, you know, this truth that we surrender, the truth about ourselves, something's wrong with me and I can't fix it. Um, the truth of our powerlessness um, and unmanageability, uh, it says it was not apparent to us at first, but this is because of uh, spiritual blindness. As it says in the first, uh, second sentence on page 84. And, uh, and this is interesting. It says, reaching the point of utter despair did not always come right away. It came to some of us only after we had been in the fellowship for a while. The full effect of step one seems to come gradually in stages with the unfolding realization of our unsoundness. It is out of this inner honesty with ourselves that the feeling of hope and forgiveness flow. This suggests, and it is my experience, it's also uh, clearly uh, voiced in the AA Big Book, 
um, that reaching a point of despair is part of the realization of powerlessness. When we have our ego deflated at death, I believe that's what it says in the 12 and 12, um, and we come to the unfolding realization of our unsoundness, the inner honesty, this these feelings of hope and forgiveness flow out of this sense of despair. Now, so that's why it's so hard for me to be honest with myself when I when I came into the program. Being honest with myself meant complete despair. I had no capacity to look at the truth without despairing. And so my own personal self solution of self-will was to fudge the truth. And then I could, you know, not be devastated by it. Uh, but that has the little little inconvenience of, you know, well, it's not true. So um, truth, reality has a way of asserting itself um, in time. And this is what happened for me. And, and apparently it's it, in some form or another it's necessary for us to go through this in order to have uh, a recovery. And, and what it does for me, I think, is allows me to detach myself from my old way of seeing things you know, to which all my coping mechanisms have been tied, but they're unsound, and it's killing me. And so, for a period of time, in order to change over to the new way of living, I have to go through this place where I have no coping mechanisms. I let go of all my old ones, and I don't know which to use. And that's why I've got to come to you in a state of brokenness uh, before I'm willing uh, to pick up the solution and, and use it. Um, I'm really experiencing this uh, in my personal life right now in a big way. My brother has been an alcoholic for 50 years. I could have told you this, you know, any time since coming into recovery. <laughs> since realizing that I was an alcoholic, I knew immediately that he was an alcoholic too. However, he has denied it always until very recently. And very recently his disease took him to the point that he was living on the street. And, uh, you know, he was going from the street to the Salvation Army shelter and back to the street. And it's cold where he is right now, and that was not a really, a really good plan. He, he, he was at the point where he could no longer deny the fact that, it, that it's not working. And so he became willing, and he's now for... Uh, going on four weeks, been in a treatment center, a very good treatment center that focuses on the 12 steps. And you know, he's sober, and uh, I, I'm really, really um, glad. But I, I had the gift of talking to him at a point which I believe may have been his point of utter despair. And I asked him if he was willing to do anything possible to recover. He broke down. Uh, and said yes, and that is the point where we found a way to get him into this treatment center. And uh, so, anyway, um, those are thoughts that I have on reading this. Um, I don't see any clear 
cut instructions in this. This is mostly observations, but um, these are the kinds of observations that help us see, you know, the, the common things in our in our spiritual path. Anybody have any observations about this? I'm only sexaholic. I mean, I guess I would I would state that um, you know when it says it came to some of us only after we had been in the fellowship for a while. You know, that's definitely me. Um, you know, sometimes I, I I can I don't think I've met utter despair. You know, I haven't been forced uh, to live in the street yet. Uh, you know, I haven't cheated on anyone. I haven't had my ass caught on fire. You know, what brought me to the room more was my acknowledging that my addiction was getting worse and acknowledging uh, where it was going to take me if I didn't get help. And not having my ass on fire feeling some days is a challenge. Because I can quickly put all that in the back of my mind and forget what this disease can do and where it can take me. Because I haven't been burned. I haven't had utter despair. And that's frightening to me. Because I just feel like I could lose it at any moment. And I know everyone thinks that they could lose it at any moment. Um but, but at least for me, of my disease, of acting out with anonymous men, it got to the point of, of not using protection anymore, and it's scary that that utter despair might be in a form where, you know, I could get a disease, I could get HIV, and at that point, it's not necessary, it's not too late to turn from that, from that point, it is, but there's a heavy consequence there that I would have to live with. And so it's just challenging. I, I struggle with that. Uh, I struggle with some days feeling okay and thinking I got this, and that's my disease making me think I'm in control. Uh, and some days I don't feel like I got this. So that's what I at least connected to that one sentence. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Lee. Lauren. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, Lauren, sexolic. Hey, Lauren. Um, Relate to a lot of it, but yeah, one of the things that stood out to me was also the, the point of despair didn't come right away, and um, that it also comes gradually or in stages. So, experienced both of that. Um, when I first got into recovery, I attended a fellowship for several months where there was one person with sobriety, and I didn't see any. Um, I didn't see a whole lot of destruction in lives. And um, it was one of those things where it offered a little bit of community. With the, I knew that I had a problem. Um, like Lee said, I had not suffered. I hated life, but I had not lost a lot to that point. I just wasn't content or happy with what I had. And um, a therapist that I started meeting with, he insisted that I started going to groups that were based on the 12 Steps. And so um started going to, to SA. That was the first group that I went to, the only group I went to um, for whatever reason. And um, and started going to SA regularly, you know, so that I could keep going to my, to my therapist. And 
man, the thing that it, it took me at least a month or two months before it kind of kicked in, but I um, regularly heard stories from other guys who had been a lot further down the road towards ruin than I had, and they had started out in the same places that I started out. I, I related to their stories, except for how far they had gone. And um, so there was that aspect, and then there was the aspect that many of them were getting sober and had been sober for a while. And they weren't impressed when I, when my acting out was decreasing, but not stopping. And I, I was hoping that was a good thing, and um, nobody seemed impressed with that. And so, and I wasn't satisfied with it either. And um, after observing that and having my ego bruised around a little bit because I was constantly comparing myself with everybody else um, I guess my ego couldn't handle it and definitely came to the realization that, that even if I didn't believe that my life was unmanageable I believed that my addiction was unmanageable and opened up to the um, input of a sponsor and started connecting with other guys in the program and at his direction and so that's and I I, I don't have any specific um, examples but I'm pretty sure that I've felt that unmanageability and despair in stages since then as well um, we're just going through different points of the program and different things come up in my life where I I'm reminded or or have the unmanageability seen more clearly um, as I had that I would you know have have another uh, yeah so the, yeah the unfolding realization coming in stages is sounds familiar as well so that's all I got <coughs> thanks, thanks Laura hey Brian, this is Howard. Hey, Brian. The awareness of unmanageability of our lives was not apparent to us at first. Yeah, I thought I had it in control, thought I was positive, thought that, you know, I, this is something I could stop. Came up that in my mind, I could come and maybe stop, and then I could be gone, and I could a year and a half, and still struggling in a sense maybe on day six approximately um, we we begin to see how we're unable to function without lust negative attitudes and dependencies holding our lives together because I'm positive on the outside but negative on the inside that equals a negative positive and negative equals a negative and so this issue of functioning without lust is the way I was covering everything up so I really did resonate with some of the shares about how the founder realized that he needed help with that and dependencies, whether no matter what it was that led me to my addiction. Um, as far as the full step of step step one, you know, maybe it's not totally been realized in my particular uh, program, but the realization of my unsoundness is pretty clear um, but also the feelings of hope and forgiveness do flow so the things that kind of I resonated with was if I was a 
a seed and I wanted a new life, well, the seed actually has to die before the seed can produce any kind of fruit. Um, and then it was discussed, not trying to crosstalk, but how seeing the progressive nature, which way this disease could go, and the fact that I don't want to go back to where I was. So there's there's that life there, and there's that insight. Hello, I need help. I wrote, um, and at one point, I remember thinking along the lines of, "Oh, I can do what I need to do, or do what I want to do, for as long as I want to." And heck, there's no problem there. But that actually is the problem. I mean, I need to be more disciplined, and you know, have some kind of order in my life, and so that that unmanageability would be somewhat contained. And instead of losing control, the desire and the reason I keep coming back is I'd like to actually have some type of control, even though I know I have to surrender, which means in a sense I do what it is my higher power wants. Sometimes that comes through either members of the program or my sponsor or you know, other people even outside the program. So that's all I have for you. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Okay. Who would like to continue reading? We're at the third option. Yes, sir. I'm Brian. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Brian. Brian. The third option. Before finally giving up, we had tried one or the other of two options. On the one hand, we expressed our obsession by acting it out. On the other hand, we tried suppressing it by drinking, drugging, eating, or by fighting it with white knuckle willpower. And with the a show of promises and resolutions. Many of us switched from acting out to suppression, back and forth. Neither option brought us peace we saw so desperately. Expressing the obsession made it progress relentlessly on and on, and suppressing it only made it the pressure build inside until something had to give. Both Options made it worse. We were between a rock and a hard space. We never knew there was another option. Surrender. What a beautiful, liberating word it has become to those of us who do it. Surrender is letting go. The story is related in 12-step program circles of how monkeys were caught in the wild. It is actually a native folktale. Fruit as bait is placed in a cage with an opening only large enough to allow the monkey's open hand to enter. Once the monkey's hand grasps the fruit, his fist becomes too large and his hand is trapped inside. Rather than letting go of the fruit so he can withdraw his hand and go free, the monkey clenches his fist all the harder as he tries to have the fruit and freedom too. Our story. There is another story of a man who fell off a cliff in the dark and is on his way down grasped for branch and hung on for dear life. Weakening, he finally cried out to heaven, Please help me. And the answer came, Let go. But if I let go, I'll die, the man replied. Let go was all he heard. When I finally, he could hold on no longer, he did let go. Knowing it was the horrible end to his great surprise, the ground was but a foot below him. As long as we either clung to it or tried to fight it into submission, our habit brought back. 
and being more powerful than we, it always won. Only when we let go does the release come, as through God mercifully raises the very earth itself to meet us. Merely knowing and admitting that we were powerless over lust, or whatever form our acting out took, didn't help until we gave up our right to do it and let go. There was no mistaking this change of heart when it happened. We knew it, and those around us knew it. There is no faking surrender. And thank God, when we did give up and stop fighting, he was always there with open arms. Instead of killing us, we had feared surrender was killing the compulsion. Keep reading your stuff. That's a good place. Let's let's um, take a look at this. You know, I I, uh, I see only one instruction in this whole thing, and that is surrender. Um, and I've had a number of people say, I've heard people say, you know, what is this thing called surrender? What does it mean? How do you do it? And um, it seems to me. I've heard surrender is not trying harder. Um, I think that's a good one. And I've also heard that uh, surrender is not trying to figure out what surrender means. Um, uh, but but for those who are concerned about what surrender means, I think there's a lot of things in this book. I've, heard, I've, I've recorded the pages of some of them, and I don't think I've gotten them all by any stretch. But um, I found... Some on 66, 70, 73, 76, 79, 80, 81, 83, 84, 85, and 86, 109, 111, 116, 117, and 118 so far. So if somebody is asking you, what does surrender mean? You might, might try uh, to uh, send them to those pages. But um, I think surrender, um, really, you know, in the big book, supposedly there are no instructions for step one. And, and, the, and the instructions for step two are very simple, and that is to lay aside prejudice and express a willingness to believe um, that, that um, you know, a God who can restore you to sanity does indeed exist and, and, and will do that if you seek him. So... Um, uh, but in in this section, you know, I mean, it, you know, we we do have we do have uh, a tradition in in um, essay that's also expressed in our uh, uh, you know fellowship uh, developed literature step into action on doing a written first step inventory, and this is an inventory of the powerlessness and unmanageability, and in that context, powerlessness means you know, things that I did over and over, behaviors that, that indicate that I'm out of control. And then unmanageability is a list of consequences of those behaviors. Many of the things that I was powerless over, I didn't have, <laughs> all. I, there were some potential consequences that I was spared of that, that really could have happened, and that's part of my insanity. Um, so I think that's important in, in the context of step one is to do some kind of inventory like that. But the admission of powerlessness, uh, 
that, that is talked about in step one, I believe, really applies to surrender. And one of the things, you know, that, that you know, it's very easy. Um, it says there's no faking surrender. Um, but in my experience, many of us try to do that very thing. And to me, what faking surrender looks like is, is like, yes, I know I'm powerlessness. I, I, lo- I know I'm powerless over lust, and yet I st- still still keep trying to do it and control it. You know, if I told you, I realize I'm powerless to lift my car, uh, you know, off the ground by myself with no, you know, uh, you know, mechanical support or you know, uh, whatever, you know, without a jack that just go up and I can't I can't do it. I can't lift my car up. If I say that and I make that admission that I'm powerless to do that, I don't have the power to do it, and then you see me out there trying to do it, then you might say, well, my admission was really kind of not real because it was just words. My actions say I don't believe I'm powerless. And I think that's what surrender is about. It's about taking the action that goes along with an admission of powerlessness. Um, There's a thing in the big book that perhaps we'll talk about in a little more depth at some point. But there's a story about a guy named Fred in Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. And on page 39, um, Fred makes a decision. He, you know, he's talked to these fellows. He had some problems. He went to the hospital because of his drinking. Uh, and they talk to him about alcoholism, and he thinks that's all well and good, but he just doesn't think he's as bad as they are. And, and he, he makes up his mind to quit drinking altogether. That's what he decides to do. He makes that decision. And, um, and it says, you know, it never occurred to him that he could not do so. Um, and, and powerlessness means that I decide to do something and that decision never gets carried out because I don't have the power to carry it out. And, and Fred's, uh, you know, decision to quit drinking altogether is ineffective. Now you go over to page 42 in the, in the big book. Uh, uh, some things happen in between. Fred's experiment doesn't work out so well. And I think there's something about a cab driver and, you know, <laughs> um, some hazy, hazy recollections. Uh, but um, at the bottom of page 42, he makes another decision, and that is a decision to go through with the process and the steps. And that is a decision that he is able to carry out. And that's what, what this whole thing about surrender is about. So when we say surrender, that really means uh, surrendering to the fact of my powerlessness, and which leads to a decision, of, of a sincere surrender will lead to a decision to go through with the, with the rest of the steps. Um, so, so I think that's a good way to, to, to think about surrender. Any, any other thoughts? Lady Lauren O'Brien? Mm, I'm Lee Thicoholic. Hey, Lee. I mean, I identify with this, this sentence in that first paragraph. Um, on the one hand, we express our obsession by acting it out. On the other hand, we try suppressing it by drinking, drugging, eating, or by fighting it with uh, white knuckle willpower. And I don't know, that just resonates to me at least that it's not just sex, it's 
it's what's behind it. Um, and it's kind of weird that, I don't know, God sometimes works crazy. Or not crazy, but it's crazy for me to understand. I mean, this this week with my therapist, we kind of mapped out my um, life. And, you know, from 12 years, I started drinking. 13, it was drugs and sex. 14, it was cigarettes. And from there, all the way to um, present day, where I've only stopped using sex for 97 days. Cigarettes was about six years. Drugs was about eight years. Drinking is kind of pretty much down. And, and, and I'm not saying I would jump into NAAA or all that, but clearly there is something behind all that that I've been using to suppress it since I was like 12 years. Um, and it, it really resonated that I am an addict. You know, um, I would say I'm more of a sexaholic than anything else, um, just because that's the hardest thing for me to um, heal from. But I don't know, that sense has really resonated with me. Um, it's not just sex, it's something behind it that we're using the sex to suppress it. Um, I don't know, that's all I got. Thanks, Lee. Thanks. submission, you know, if you're holding on to something so hard and you're, you're not willing to let it go, or if you're, I don't know, it's like, it's all my family trying to fight two or three of those at one time, it's like, you can't beat these guys, you just have to let go, go do whatever they want to do, and just let me know what it is I'm supposed to do. And then I find out God steps in and he does what he wants to do. And everybody else just looks like, how did that happen? <laughs> you know, and so for me, this issue of being, admitting that I'm powerless, I, I totally buy into or accept, in a sense, not cross-talking, but what you kind of shared initially, and not just trying to say it and then continue going and acting out. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I'm powerless. Mm-hmm. Yet I go out and I try to control it. So... You know, this issue of my inventory and unmanageability and, you know, well, if I'm powerless, then there's somehow I'm going to let go of this and I've got to take this action. It goes along with this mission of powerlessness. So what really resonates with me is like, I don't know, they used to say about 2 or 3% of our brain and the most intelligent person on the planet we use now, or maybe 10%. And maybe they know of the universe, maybe 5% of the universe. So, you know, as humans, we don't have a clue as to what 95% of the universe is. How am I going to know what's going on, everything in my psyche, whether it be my, my spirit, you know, mind, conscious or unconscious. There's all this stuff going on, and I've got so many things. So I am thankful I found this program. I know it's been a big time consuming thing but it's really something very important for me that I have to do and um, I'm just glad to be here thanks Brian thanks, thanks Brian. Brian let's take a little break Brian we could always do this meeting at uh, Gutsman's office there are 
you're on tape now. No more adver- advertising for chicken places. Okay. So, I am a sexaholic. I'm Lee Sexaholic. I am a sexaholic. Experience has shown that the public aspect of surrender is crucial. It seems surrender is never complete until it is brought out into the open, into the company of others. This is the great test that separates wishers and whiners from doers. It's as, a, it's as, as though I was not willing to put it down until I brought it out before others who were putting theirs down, making others a part of my surrender helped me to be honest with it. What is the public aspect of surrender? First, it is being able to acknowledge we are. It takes some of us weeks or months of coming to meetings before we can realize it at death and saying from the inside, I am a sexaholic. Others seem to freely acknowledge this immediately. Next, we start talking honestly about ourselves. First, what we've done and thought in the lust, sex, and relationship area. Then, gradually, as more is revealed, we talk about our other defects. Typically, these are revealed progressively over time. It's as though we can't see the full extent of the power of sexualism has over us without first making a start at sharing it in the fellowship. Then we begin to see and disclose more as we become part of the progressive honesty and self-disclosure of others. A trust begins to develop as we see that nothing is being held against us and that others are just like we are, or worse off. Trust deepens as we become mutually vulnerable by leading with our weaknesses. Leading with our weaknesses becomes a point of identification and union with each other, and it seems someone's self-disclosure has to start it off. Someone takes the risk because he or she has to. The pain is so bad. This helps us pull away the curtain concealing the truth of our own lives and encourages our own self-disclosure. The honesty of one encourages the honesty of others, as though we'd all been waiting for just such a fellowship where we could be on the outside what we really were on the inside all along. All this takes time. We didn't get here in a day, but before we know it, there's a shared honesty and mutual vulnerability. This is the breakthrough entrance into the program that will open the way into the healing power of the steps. And this is why there must be those in our meetings who are hurting or who have hurt badly enough to break through into true honesty and surrender. This lends power to the meeting and the spiritual unity and effectiveness of the group are enhanced. With an in-depth realization of what we really are and a willingness to reveal the truth about ourselves to other members, we can connect with recovery. When we begin telling it like it really is and was, From the inside out, we become part of. The spiritual connection begins here by first disconnecting from what we did, and we disconnect from it by sending it away from us as we tell it. This is the point of breakthrough. The essence of effective sharing is that we want to be done with our sexual or other wrongs and are sending them away. Mere catharsis? Catharsis. Or catharsis or even honest self-disclosure disclosure, misses the mark if that's all it is. The aim is to bring our diseased attitudes and misdeeds to the light of others and God to be done with them. 
When it comes from such an attitude, sharing becomes a liberating and life-giving experience. This is why telling all is not taking the first step. Such confession can be anything from boastful reply to, to anguish dumping or intellectual analysis. And even then, it's not really all and often is only surface material. In truth, we don't take the first step. It takes us. It overtakes us. And if it hasn't yet, hopefully it will. The sickness and punishment sexaholism produces inside us keep pounding us until we're ready to give up, let go, and know we are powerless over lives. Thank you, Lee. That's a good section here. Um, I did see some instructions in this section. Um, it talks about bringing sur- uh, surrender out into the open. And um, this public aspect, it says, what is it? It says, first, it is being able to acknowledge what we are. It's saying, I am a sexaholic. Um, so, um, I've, I've known people who had difficulty <coughs> saying that also. <coughs> Some of us got here, <coughs> tore, tore up enough that it was a relief to say I'm a sexaholic. Um, but yeah, um, that's the first step. Then it says next, you know, we start talking honestly about ourselves first about our actions and our thoughts in the domain of lust and so forth, and then about other defects. Progressive honesty and self-disclosure. This is something, if it's progressive, then that means it's an ongoing thing to learn that. And, uh, you know, honesty is not just about saying things that are true facts. It's about the absence of an intent to deceive. And it's also about the absence of an intent or a need to manipulate what you think about me. If I'm telling you the truth with a motive, I'm telling you the truth about this so that you won't think that, then, you know, so you won't misjudge me or, you know, think ill of me or something then I'm not fully being honest to where I can just say the statement, put a period at the end of my sentence, let it go, and let you make of it what you will. Um, that That's a thing that takes continuing, like it says, progressive honesty. Now, the part of the thing about progressive honesty that bothers me a little bit is because I've heard, <laughs> I remember this guy once told me, I, I'm, I've, I've been partially honest with you. And I was like, okay, so you lied. <laughs> so the whole thing about partial honesty, you know, um, yeah, progressive honesty can sound a little like partial honesty. So, uh, but, but I think what that means to me is that honesty <clears throat> is something that's very deep. Um, and uh, learning about it, you know, I have, to, I have to learn, I have to know myself before I can truly say who I am or, or uh, express myself authentically. And that's a process. A trust begins to develop. Um, and, you know, as we become mutually vulnerable by leading with our weakness. Um, I think this means leading in, in, not in terms of uh, being the leader, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of, uh, kind of a, a, well, it is kind of a paradox, but, but, um, I think 
weakness and vulnerability means not not needing to lead, but uh, being willing to be led. And so, um, um, but but I think this 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 thing of vulnerability and honesty, self disclosure. Um, telling you the thing that I'm afraid for you to know um, about me. That is a powerful thing when someone in the group does that. That makes it possible for others to do it. And and so it's leading it that way, being the first one to do it. Um, uh, it uh, hel- helps others follow. And um, it, it's really a, a powerful thing about it. And it's, an impor- it's important for you know, someone to do it. Sometimes that person needs to be me, and other times I'll, I'll follow somebody else's lead because there's no, you know, one leader. Um, so it's shared honesty and mutual vulnerability. Um, this is the breakthrough. Um, we can connect. We can become part of. There is a thing about being a part of that's very, very deep for me. There was a fella. Uh, who's no longer alive, named Don P. Uh, and he uh, was in AA, and he taught one of my teachers. Uh, so I know about him through him. You know, I never met Don P., but, but Don P. was a great teacher, one of my very great teachers. So Don P. said that the only thing, there's nothing, how did he, how did he say it? He said, if Feeling whether or not I feel like I belong has nothing to do with whether or not you accept me. It has everything to do with whether I accept you. And that was kind of a mind-blowing statement for me. And I still think I've had a a couple of aha moments about that, but I still don't think I've completely figured it out. But it's very, in my experience, it's very true. I'm apart from because I'm afraid of you. And I'm afraid of you because I judge you. And if I accept you as as you are, then that's what helps me become a part of. And that's where the vulnerability pays off. Um, as soon as I accept you, I am a part of. The, uh, the, the, the other thing is related to, to you know, my... The same, the same teacher of mine that, that knew Don said, the act cannot participate in fellowship. If I'm afraid to let you know who I am, then I can't really show up in, in, in experience of fellowship. And that means that the love that's in the room, the fellowship that, 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 that is you know, expressed through that fellowship, can't really reach me. This is the story of my life before recovery. I had these deep, dark secrets that I was not going to let anybody know. And so all my life, there were people who tried very well to love me. They loved me well, but that love could not reach me because I would not show up. Not the real me. I believed they wouldn't accept me if they knew the real me. And so every time they loved me, Something inside me said oh, they wouldn't feel that way if they really knew. And so I deflected all that love. It never reached me. The more I did that, the more I, I was starving and dying of thirst for that love. And, 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 and the more afraid I became. So it's a pretty 
So it, it, it's really something that's got to be broken. I've got to be broken before I'm willing to to flip that around because the more <laughs> isolated I get, the more afraid uh, I get, the more afraid I get, the more I need love, you know. But but the the, the less I can receive it. It's 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 crazy. So um, so when we break that, we're sending away our, our wrongs and mere catharsis. He loves these these nice words. It's really like dumping, uh, just so I'll feel better. Like you know, just a you know a confession or an absolution or whatever um, is it is it misses the mark. If that's all it is, if I just do that so that I can continue doing what I've been doing, then um, then. It doesn't, what it says here, bring our disease attitudes and misdeeds to the light of others and God to be done with them. You know, if I'm just there to get some kind of forgiveness or whatever, then, you know, it's almost like getting a Band-Aid so I can just get patched up and go keep on doing the way I've been doing it. And that's my story before I came to recovery. I didn't want to really let go of what I was doing, I just wanted to make the consequences less painful. And so anything that, that could have, you know, really healed me, I deflected in the same way I deflected that love. Um, because I I was just using it as a as a catharsis or a you know, just a feel good. Um and so this is why telling all is not taking uh the first step it can be a boast Social replay, anguish dumping, or intellectual analysis, um, and you know it's not really all. Um, we don't take the first step; it takes us. Uh, I think that's that's it. Overtakes us. If it hasn't yet, hopefully it will. Um, you know the sickness and punishment that sexualism produces keeps pounding until we're ready to. Surrender, and and until we know deep within our hearts at depth. I mean, if I know that so and so can beat the crap out of me, I am not going to try to fight him anymore. That's surrender. I am not going to get in the ring with Mike Tyson. Okay, I am not crazy. You know, uh, sorry, I, I just lied. I am crazy, but <laughs> but I am not crazy in that way that I believe that I could get in the ring with Mike Tyson and, and, and leave anything uh, leave as anything other than a, a pile of jelly. Um, so, so I don't do it. Uh, I realize that at depth. Um, but, but this is what, what I have to do in order to take the first step is realize this at depth. Can I ask a, a question? Um, sure. Not to try to make it about me. So, you know, I totally get this, the sharing in the meetings and, you know, what, it, what it, I mean, everything that we just talked about. But what about beyond the meeting? In the sense that, can you, at, at least for me, you know, no one outside the meeting knows anything. So does that mean, can I have recovery by not bringing in my loved ones into this? You know, I can't. I can't answer. That's the sort of question that has to be carefully 
uh, considered with with a sponsor, with with a rela- personal relationship with God, um, you know, and, and with an examination, an honest examination of the patterns in in your relations. Uh, and and I think certainly there's a case where uh, uh, manipulating or or the you know or, or live, living in such a way as to keep my loved ones in the dark about what's really going on with me can interfere with my recovery and it can become a form of dishonesty. And clearly, that's going to go contrary to the principles that I need to live by in order to recover. At the same time, there can be situations where honesty could be, you know, unnecessary and damaging. And and it's I don't think there's any particular rule you know, there, there are some things that, you know, my parents or my siblings, uh, my nieces and nephews do not need to know. <laughs> They're, you know, they just don't need to. And, and in fact, um, you know, uh, it, it, it could be, it could be, you know, really painful for them <laughs> if, if I, you know, dumped it on them. So, yeah, I think we each have a personal. The principles of the program give us ways of looking at the specifics of our own life and, and doing our best to, 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 to uh, discern what God, as we each understand him, would have us do. I can't, I can't, you know, I, I, whenever I have a question like that with a sponsee, I try very hard to to get the sponsee, to get others involved, perhaps a therapist, perhaps a priest, perhaps some some uh, close friends uh, uh, who can assess the relationships and give input, and then prayer and try, you know, what, what do you honestly believe the best that you can, uh, uh, the, what God would have you do? And, and, of course, I can manipulate that, but if I'm truly looking for God's answer that, and listening to the, those that, you know, I trust, that I can trust and, and, and reading and, and doing everything I can. And I'm likely to either find out what God really wants me to do or the best that I can do, in which case if I do that, even if it's a mistake, then I will learn how better to hear what God, God would have me do. And, and if I'm really seeking Him and relying, doing my best to rely on Him, then He'll, he'll show me you know how how to what the, either what the right thing is or how to how to fix a mistake and how to learn a lesson from it. I don't know if that is is helpful at all, but um, yeah, I mean it gives another opinion on it. So yeah, so it's very it's very individual. Any other thoughts about this section or either that topic or what we've read? My name is Brian. I'm a sexaholic. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Kind of a question, kind of a statement. I remember several meetings where people have just said, "Oh, I really hate this section." Then they, they preface or state afterwards, "Yeah, I really needed to hear this section." And so I think um, I don't know that I would use the word hate, but you know, just this whole reading of this last little share is just been eating my lunch because it's like when you first shared earlier that nowhere in the big book does it give any instructions about the first step. Oh, okay. Nowhere in the 12 and 12 
doesn't give any instructions about the first step. But here they have instructions that are very clear, you know, that you're supposed to give your first step away. It kind of even implies you give it away to a group. And that one little bit has eaten my lunch. And I'll just share with several of the guys, I won't mention names, but y'all are here in this room, so I think it's okay. You know, I can't wait till you give away your first step. You should let me know and I'm going to be there. And I'm thinking, you must think I'm crazy. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to tell you when and where. <laughs> Much less invite the whole world. You know, I'm thinking that's not it. You know, I remember reading about the early um, uh, ones of my faith tradition. And, uh, you know, they would go out in front of everybody. They would tell their whole story. And then their wives were beating the bleep out of them. And, and you know, other people would be getting mad at them for other reasons. And, well, then they decided, well, maybe when you go and you tell all this stuff that's on the inside, you go in private with someone and you do that. And the fifth step talks about, you know, doing your inventory. And so I guess what I'm asking is, and maybe it's not totally for this moment, but how does the inventory, which is something that's given away, but it's, from my point of view, given away to a sponsor, how do they extrapolate backwards or how would it affect me as far as giving away? Because I don't think correct me if I'm wrong, that you're actually supposed to give away your entire inventory. And so, and just as a quick side thought on that, I remember when I went through my annulment process, there was this, it was three separate sections before I was married, during the marriage, oh, when we were dating, actual dating, uh, excuse me, close to being married, early marriage and later marriage, and these questions, and my aunt was looking at all these questions before I was filling out, and she says, she just couldn't believe it, how depth, great depth it was. She said, there's no way you need to go in there and give them an autobiography of what exactly went down in your life. Because I'm not going to tell everybody what color every single room is in every single part of my life. Anyway, I think that's too much of a question, so I'll just leave it at that for right now. But it might be something we do when the tape's off. And I don't know. <laughs> greater details. Well. Okay. And peace be all, by the way. That sounds good. Well, do we want to try to finish this last little bit up in the step one section before we had a few comments? Okay, um, Lauren Sexaholic. Hey, Lauren. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get them back all together. I've definitely. Um, I, I don't remember 98% of the meetings I go to, but I can definitely remember a handful. Primarily early on, where either I or someone else in the program exhibited that shared honesty and mutual vulnerability, or, or put some stuff out there in the middle of a meeting. Sometimes it happens during um, first steps. Uh, I remember just in other shares and meetings um, where there would be some stuff put out there that could potentially be risky to um, divulge and I remember leaving some meetings more stirred up than when I went in um, because I don't know why it doesn't matter why I was stirred up but somebody was vulnerable enough and risky enough to share something that was scary or, or you know unmentionable something like that and um and that's where I grew to believe, you know, that I, I did come to start believing that, 
you know, yeah, I can be accepted here. I, there's not going to be anything that I can put out there and people are going to kick me out of the meetings over it or whatever. Um, and that was big. That was um, a big deal to get to that point. It goes back to what Steve was saying about judging people and judging that I'm going to be rejected or me rejecting other people. Um, that's how I live. And kind of going back to what, tying in with what Lee said, I can definitely see areas, places, communities in my life where I'm not comfortable because I do judge that I wouldn't be accepted um, and things would not go well if I put information out there. And so, I mean, in general, the essay meetings tend to be about as comfortable as I get in my own skin. Um, but at the same time, you know, like when I'm at work, I don't have any, it never thought crosses my mind that I'm out of integrity with myself because I don't tell these people my stuff. It never crosses my mind. I could care less. I mean, I do care. If I divulge a bunch of stuff, it might end my career <laughs> on a functional level in some way. But um, at the same time, I'm not concerned about whether those people reject me or not. But I can think of other groups like my family and my church where I'm, I am out of integrity with myself to some degree because I do, but I'm, I'm selectively dishonest by what, with what I share. And um, I don't know what to do with that. Um, you know, those are places where I would like to be able to be honest and be transparent, if, if possible. And um, for whatever reason, I'm not quite ready to go that <laughs> to take that step in those groups. Um, not to say that I never will, and not to say that I'm going to tell them everything either. But um, you know, it's I don't know. That's what I was thinking. And I forgot everything else I was thinking, so I'm going to stop. Okay. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Well, I think that's a good place to stop. Um, I'm going to run out of battery here, and I um, don't need to rush through all this. Um, any closing thoughts, anyone? Just enjoy it. Hmm? I'm enjoying it. Okay. Well, why don't we circle up and close with a prayer? Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is with heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Thank you. Thank you.
I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.